0: Let's pray once more before we launch into chapter 5. Father, as we come to the end of this book, we ask about the Holy Spirit will just give us uh, the insight and illumination we need to be able once again to hear with open ears, to receive with hungry hearts, and then to apply in the power of your Spirit to our lives to the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. James chapter 5 is now going to deal with the danger of distractions, and of course with the distractions comes more ineffectiveness. Our key verse for the chapter is in verse 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, or a better translation would be the fervent prayer of a righteous man has great power when it is effective. How do we make it effective? That's a question we'll answer when we get there. The chapter really breaks down into three sections. In the first section up through verse six, we have the rebuke of the rich. The rich who are using their wealth, their power, their status to abuse fellow believers. Then we have comfort to those being victimized or abused by them. That's verses seven through 12. And then verse 13 to the end, uh, he deals with the issue of prayer and the importance of prayer in our lives. So let's start right in the first six verses. Let me read it and then I'll make a few comments. I'm going to try to keep this fairly brief. I think most of it is self-explanatory. Come now, ye rich. By the way, as he's going to address here, the rich and then in verse 7 and following the poor, where is he gathering this from? He's going right back to chapter 1. You remember chapter 1 when he said, let the poor man glory in the fact that he has been exalted and the rich man in that he has been made low. Well, he's going to bring the rich low as he deals with this now. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. I might just say that when we have wisdom from God's Word and we have discernment, you can look at people and say, they're heading for a fault. And that's what James is doing. He's saying you you have uh, consequences coming that you have uh, basically produced yourself and it's not going to be pleasant. I think we can look at our country and we can see a country that has gone mad. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm living in a mental institution and the inmates are running the mental institution. The absolute mental illness that is rampant, not just in our country, but around the world. It's mental illness. And it's, well, let's use James' term. It is the wisdom from below. It is demonic, it is sensual, and it is devilish. And that's, you know, it's terrible when one country goes that way. There has never been a time in history when the whole world has gone that way. The whole world has gone mad. That's why we know we are living in a truly historic time. Because not since the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10... Has the whole world been united in evil? So we are living in a very interesting time. And you know that the Chinese curse was, may you live in interesting times. So. He says in verse 2, your riches are corrupted, your garments are modern. Now he's speaking to people who have got pockets full of gold and silver and are wearing the finest robes that money can buy. And he says your riches are corrupted your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. When is that going to happen? He's talking here to believers. It's going to happen at the beam of seat of Jesus Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. Remember the issue at the judgment seat of Christ is wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. By the way, we can fall into uh, a danger of this in thinking that we can meet the future if we can stockpile enough. A question we must ask ourselves, and you know me. I believe in looking ahead. I believe in doing everything you can to prepare. We're told to do that in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. Go to the ant, you slugger. Consider her ways and be wise. She stores up her food in the summer so that she has food in the winter. Um, I'm all for that, but I constantly challenge myself with this question. If I'm standing here in what I have on with my empty hands, am I ready to meet what's coming? If I have nothing else, if I'm standing here With empty hands, do I have what I need? Could I face anything that may come, anything that I can imagine, could I face it and be victorious? If we don't have that kind of preparation, we're not prepared. I used to have a picture of a special forces soldier and he was standing there with bandages on his arms and a bandage around his head and you could see blood dripping from many wounds and he was standing there with his Fist clenched, and he had nothing. They said your mind is your greatest weapon. Our soul filled with the word of God is our greatest weapon. We need to be able to stand if we're stripped naked and empty handed. Could we handle what's coming? That's when we know we're ready. Indeed, verse four, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud cry out. Now, How would a believer defraud a fellow believer who works for it? Well, the same way your politicians vote themselves another raise when you're struggling to survive. The same way they continue to impose on you taxes that are eating up your justly earned benefits. It's all evil. Now, the Bible tells us that we're to pay taxes where taxes are due. That's a very important little phrase. We are taxed on everything. You're taxed on the money you make. Then you're taxed on the money you spend. You're taxed because of what you buy. If you sell something, you're taxed because you sold something to someone else. It's just endless. Our forefathers rebelled against England because of taxation without representation. Unjust taxation. Do you know what they were charged compared to what you're being charged every single day of your life? A few percentage points. And they rebel. And we just keep being driven deeper and deeper and deeper into poverty so that we can let them shovel money, send pallets of money all over the world while our roads are getting worse, our manufacturing has been destroyed, our country is turning into a third world country, and we still have billions and billions and billions to just funnel everywhere else. And a lot of them are believers. A lot of them are believers. Do you ever hear any of them say this is unconstitutional? Our constitution, you know, every single one of them I just read something interesting of a guy who is fighting a court battle over unjust attack, basically, from political people. Uh, And he's he's just fighting almost a a one-man battle. He sent a letter to each one of them and asked that it would be notarized and say, what was the oath of office that you took? What was the oath of office? Just tell me the oath of office that you took. They refused to answer. Every single one of them takes an oath that goes out the window the minute that they've said it. They have no more intention of fulfilling that oath. Our Constitution means absolutely nothing. If you tell those who are persecuting you and defrauding you, as James speaks about here, that that is unconstitutional, do you know what they'll do? They'll laugh in your face doesn't mean anything to it at all. So the wages of the laborers that mowed your fields which you have kept back by fraud cry out. You remember the old company store concept? You work in the coal mine but the, the uh, agreement to you being hired and having a job and having a wage is that you have to buy everything in the company store. Well, you can walk down the street or go into town and you can find the same thing for half as much, but your agreement is you have to buy it at the company store, which jacks the prices up. And so the old song, you know, 16 tons and what do you get? Deeper in debt to the company store. That's just the situation that exists. So here we have people who have defrauded their workers and James says that the wages that you have kept back cry out and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. I want you to think about this because as I look to the future, it doesn't look very bright. It looks dark. It looks like there's a terrible, terrible storm coming. But I do know this. We have a God who hears the cries of those who are being victimized. If you haven't seen the movie on the child trafficking, Sound of Freedom, you need to watch it. And what you need to do is realize that that is a tiny splinter of a fraction of what is going on. Just a tiny part. And the cries of those children that are being trafficked, and by the way, the biggest child trafficker on the planet, do you know who it is? United States government. Isn't that interesting? The cries of those children who are being trafficked, who are being abused, and some of whom are being sacrificed because everybody at the top is a Luciferian. I can tell you that without question. Every single one of them is a Luciferian. Those children that are going into that black hole never to be heard from again Our God hears their cries. And there is a day coming, and I pray for it, that he is going to rise up, and he is going to strike a mighty blow, and we need to pray that that day will come soon. The cries of those who are being victimized and the cries of those who are being abused have entered the ears of the Lord of armies. And he is going to marshal his forces, and he is going to bring judgment, and it will be swift, and it will be total, and it will be sure. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Like a hog at the trough, they fatten themselves for what purpose? Just to be slaughtered. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Who's he talking about here? I want to tell you three different approaches to this particular text, because I find it so interesting. He is saying of the rich, you have murdered the just and he does not resist you. First idea, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was murdered by the rich, by the wealthy, not believers in particular, primarily by the Sanhedrin, which was primarily made up of the priesthood, which was primarily made up of Sadducees, which was primarily made up of rich and wealthy merchants. They murdered the just and he did not resist. One idea. Second idea, you have murdered the just. That is the laborer who is faithfully working, for, faithfully working for you, who is doing his job conscientiously. He is fulfilling his part of the bargain, and yet through your fraud and through your theft and through your deprivation, you have murdered him. A third idea that I've never heard from anyone. This is a genism. The Spirit of God may have given James a prophecy of his own death. Did you know that James was called the just? James the just was so righteous in his behavior. Not only the Jerusalem church, not only the believers throughout the land of Israel, far and wide and even to the Pharisees wow that was good wasn't it sorry we just lost about six lives (laughs) James was known far and wide as James the just and he is saying to the rich you have murdered the just and he does not resist you And as I said, uh, I take this as having been written very early. Uh, I think Zane Hodges actually, again, it's in your notes, he puts it uh, possibly as early as the 30s. uh, In about 62 AD, Eusebius tells us that he was put to death, as I described earlier. So was he possibly prophesying of his own death? So of course, pretty straightforward the abuse of those who have against those who have not. Let me make an application. Every one of us in this room is rich. We don't have to talk about the politicians making $200,000 a year, voting themselves another $35,000 raise. Every single one of us, there is not a poor person in this audience. We have more than most of the world has ever dreamed of. We have options and opportunities that the rest of the world will never know, the majority of them. What are we doing to help those who are in need? Ben and I were just talking. Most of our churches have become enablers for people who are too lazy to work. We, uh, He was saying that someone mentioned to him that, In the story of the prodigal son, if it was our modern churches, they put up a tent and bring him food every day to take care of him and just enable his continuing in the sinful condition that he was in. And as I said earlier, I see these people standing on the street corner. Some of them have been interviewed. They make sometimes hundreds of dollars a day. I'm not saying they all do. I'm not saying that there's no one out there that doesn't really and truly need help but you know what my policy when I go to India you're, you're swamped by beggars you're just swamped by beggars sometimes they just surround you they're just pleading they're, they're desperate my policy number one I give them enough money for a few meals that's it a few meals I can't support their lifestyle I can't take care you know there's a beggar every five steps you can't support them all but I do not give to anyone who's able-bodied. If you're able-bodied, I don't give you anything. There are people that are in need and you need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God so that when you see this one with the sign, have you ever noticed they all sometimes hold the same sign? Lost my job need money to get back home and you'll see three people around town they've all got the same sign. Hey, they talk at night and they're like, hey, what do you think will really get to them this time? Oh, well, let's write this on the sign. Any act of kindness will help. You walk by them and don't give it to them and they spit on you. They believe in acts of kindness, don't they? So we are wealthy and we need to give those in need and I would never presume to tell anyone to whom but I will will tell you this let the Spirit guide you make sure the Spirit is prompting you and not just some sense of benevolence make sure that the Spirit of God because he knows if you're sensitive you will know when to give and when not to give I'm going to leave it at that because we need to get through this verse 7 he speaks to those who have been taken advantage of. Therefore, be patient, my brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You say, how long do I have to hang on? Just till the coming of the Lord. He wrote this 2,000 years ago. Here we are 2,000 years late. How long do we have to hang on? We ask the same question they asked in his day. What does he tell us? The coming of the Lord is near. He's coming. It's at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren. By the way, He's either coming for you at the rapture or he's coming in a personal rapture when he calls your name and your heart stops beating and you fall down on your face. One's as good as the other. Everybody says, well, I would just love to experience the rapture. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. But you know what? You don't know what the experience of death is like. Do you want to know what it's like? It was written about 3,000 years ago. Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for, what's the next word? You are with me. When you walk through the valley of the shadow, there's only one other person walking through it with you. And you will have a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ in what we call death that is unlike and surpassing anything that you ever imagined. So, I can look forward to the rapture. I can look forward to Oh, oh, sorry. I almost had a heart attack. (laughs) just lost two more lives there. (laughs) Be patient. Do not grumble against one another. I think I touched on this in class previously. Every time you feel motivated to find fault with someone as a fellow believer, either say something good about them or compliment them, you know what you'll do? You'll break the habit. you break the habit. It's a good thing to do. Uh, someone asked me in the middle, "Does that mean that we can never identify something someone does as wrong?" <clears throat> of course not. There is discernment. There is a place for rebuke. There is a place for correction, but it needs to be done in the right way. It needs to be motivated by a desire for their well-being and for their blessing. Do not grumble against one another, brother, lest you be condemned. Oh, the judge is standing at the door. You remember the picture that I used earlier? You're in a courtroom setting. Someone is about to be put on trial. It just so happens to be you. And when the judge comes in, where are you? Well, in his absence, you thought you'd just go up and try out the judge's chair. Ah, man, this is comfortable. Oh, I could sit here all day long and the judge walks in. You're on trial and you just got 10 new charges filed against you. Don't try to take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is standing at the door. And the analogy here of standing at the door indicates he sees and knows and hears everything that we're doing, everything that we're saying, and even more everything that we think in our heart and our soul. My brethren, take the Prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. All of the prophets were persecuted. Persecution is the price we pay for speaking the truth. Today, when you speak the truth, you will pay a price. If you say, as some young, brave people, by the way, we are, I know we look at the younger generation and we, you know, wring our hands and and put our hands on our forehead and say, where are we going? But I want to tell you something. This generation is producing some of the most courageous young people that we have ever seen. There are young people who are standing up against school boards. There are young people who are taking a stand against their friends. They are not afraid to speak the truth. And we hear about it and we read about it only once in a while because the media doesn't want you to know that. They never want to give you anything that gives you hope but they're out there. And they speak the truth in a statement such as there are only two sexes. They get thrown out of school. You know what? You can't say that in our military. Our military now has sessions to train our soldiers to think like a mentally insane person. And it's absolute insanity, but it's demonically produced. This is not happening just because of a bunch of Illuminati figures back there behind the scene. It's something much, much worse than that. This is organized in the throne room of Lucifer himself. And it's carried out by his forces across this planet in people who have gone that path of rejecting the truth and creating a vacuum in their mind and their hearts have been darkened and their hearts have been hardened to the point where everything has been turned upside down and good is evil and evil is good. And they believe it absolutely. There are people who absolutely believe that there are 52 genders. They have to keep adding LGBTQA1 plus X, Y, Z. And it's absolute madness. You'll be persecuted for saying that. The prophets suffered because they spoke the truth. Was it worth it? Was it worth it to Isaiah if the tradition of him is true that they stuck him inside a hollow log and sawed him in two? Was it worth it? You better believe it, because you know what—that lasted but a moment. His honor and his glory is going to last forever. Verse eleven: Indeed, we bless, uh, count them blessed who endure. Example: You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. In the story of Job, you remember he starts as the the richest man of the ancient East. He probably lived prior to Abraham. We don't know exactly the time, but I would uh, take that as a good starting point. Rich, wealthy, loved, honored, respected, admired, went through the loss of everything except his wife. The devil had to leave her so she could nag him. cried out to the heavens. Why has God allowed this to happen? My children are dead. My wealth is gone. My health is gone. I'm miserable every day. Why has God allowed this to happen? He didn't see what was going on behind the scenes in the challenge that the devil threw down the gauntlet at the foot of the throne of God and said, if you let me get at him, if you let me curse him, if you let me touch his body, he'll curse you to your face. God said, oh, Really? You want a challenge? You want a duel? You're on. He takes away the hedge, lets the devil through. The devil begins working Job over. He cries out in his anguish and confusion and perplexity, but he comes through it all with his faith intact. I know that my Redeemer lives and I know that he will stand on the earth at the latter days and even though I die and the worms destroy my flesh, in my body I am going to face my Savior. That's what he knew. And he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He can take me to the very depths of... Misery and depression and take my life. I'll still trust him. Pretty amazing. You've heard of Job. What happened at the end? Job ended up with his fortunes restored. He ended up under greater blessing than before. Now, it's very easy for us to say, well, I know people that hasn't happened to. I know believers who have suffered and suffered and suffered and then died. We all some of us can think of a couple that have gone through unbelievable suffering and affliction making no sense they're going to die that way so you say, well, God restored Job. He gave him back all his wealth. Why do you think he did that? So that the story would remind us that it's not over for us at death. There's something beyond, and that's where the end of the Lord and the end that he intends is waiting for you and I. And I'll tell you what, it will be a whole lot better than having your herds and your flocks and your children restored. It's called eternal reward. It's called crown of righteousness. Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no-no. He wants to remind us once again, take us back to chapter 3, and just remind us that little member of your body that is so dangerous and so destructive, get it under the control of God the Holy Spirit. Speak the truth, speak plainly, and shut up. Just, just say what needs to be said. You know, wise people are people of few words. I forget who said it. It's somewhere in my uh, little quotes that I had. A wise man arguing with a woman says nothing. I'll leave you with that. Be patient. Have perseverance. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep your mind fixed on eternity. And you will come through and be richly, richly rewarded. The last section, we enter into the importance of prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Anybody suffering here? You don't have to raise your hand. Probably many of you are. Sometimes... It's the bite of the mosquito, and sometimes it's the charge of the elephant. It can be just a small irritation and aggravation. It can be something massive. And oftentimes we share our minor irritations with people, but we don't tell them about the real struggles, the big struggles. Is anyone among you suffering? What's the solution? Let him pray. The more you're suffering, the longer you pray. Pour your heart out to the Lord. He hears and he answers. Is anyone cheerful? Anybody cheerful here? Well, I know some of you are. You've been laughing at whole the time. Let him sing songs. Please don't start now. Psalms were originally written to be sung by the Levitical choir. And uh, they were also designed to teach you scripture. This is one of the things that drives me crazy about many songs that are written. They don't include if not the words of Scripture, the thoughts of Scripture. And the songs that we sing, and quite frankly, some of the Christian songs that are out now, I get them in my head, and I cannot get them out, and I hate them. They're stupid. Stupid, stupid songs. And they get in your head. Because that's what songs are designed to do. The whole reason that we learn to sing is once you learn a song, you remember the words. Well, if those words happen to be scripture, you've got something that goes over and over in your mind that's the truth. Instead of what some, honestly, I I read some of the Christian songs that are out and I think, was this person even conscious when they wrote it? Honestly, they make no sense. They just try to think of something to put together to sound nice. But there are some good ones out there. We've sang quite a few of them this weekend and I appreciate so much those who have led us. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The first participle of the word anointing precedes the action of the main verb, which is to pray, and so it's saying that you anoint them with oil first, and then you pray. Now, when we go to places like India, people will come to you with physical maladies, and they'll bring a little jar of oil, and they want you to anoint them with oil, and they want you to pray, and that's all fine. I have no problem with that. James tells us to do it. But we need to understand that anointing with oil in the ancient world was considered the basic medicinal uh, response to a malady. They would anoint. I have to tell you that once I was in India, I was so, so sick, I thought I was going to die. I felt like I was on the verge of death. Pastor John Francis and his father-in-law showed up. They found out I was sick. They went and got some oil, and I basically got a full-body rub down with oil. I thought I was dying. I fell into a deep sleep for two hours, woke up, and went out and had a baptism for eight Hindus who had become Christians. And we marched through the village as all the uh, villagers were singing and the Hindus all came to look out their doors to find out what was going on as these eight Hindus made their public acknowledgement that they had trusted Christ as their Savior. We walked to the river. The whole village followed because they wanted to see what was going on. I was able to explain to them Baptism as a outward display of an inward change through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I put these people in the water and brought them up and we had a wonderful day of celebration. I never felt better in my life. So don't knock it. Anointing with oil was the first thing you did in the ancient world if somebody got sick. Call for the elders of church. Why the elders of the church? Well, because, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick. What do you do when you see the word saved in Scripture? You ask a question. Save from what? Is this guy getting eternal life because they prayed over him for his illness? Of course not. The five times that Jude This is the fourth time, by the way, in James that he uses the word "saved." He's talking about physical healing. Deliverance from the illness. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins he will be forgiven. A lot of times our illnesses are divine discipline. They're the result of disobedience. You say, well, how can just praying for him get his (coughs) sins Forgiven. Well, you've got to read on to the next verse. Confess your trespasses to one another. Keep it in the context. I'm not going to tell you all my sins. I don't want you telling me your sins, because if you tell me your sins, I'm going to have sins. I'm either going to start thinking about what it is you're thinking about, or else I'm going to think you're an idiot for thinking what you're thinking about. But whether I do one or the other, you cause me to sin, right? In the context, the sick person who knows that he is very likely under discipline, is confessing his trespass. The word trespass means that he knew the line in the sand was there and he blatantly and willfully stepped over it and now he's suffering from sickness. He assumes then that this is divine discipline and so he acknowledges to the elders that he is called, look, I am really sorry, but he said I've been slandering all of you guys to everybody else in the church and now they have to pray for him after he's confessed so that he can be healed. His confession is first to God and then to others. Confess your sins, trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed, whether the healing is physical or whether it is spiritual or whether it is the healing of a relationship. You know, there's nothing that will heal a broken relationship faster than the person who caused the offense and caused the breakdown says, I know what I did and I'm more sorry than you will ever know. I know the pain I caused you. I know that I brought you grief. And all I can do is say, I acknowledge it, and I'm sorry. You know what? It's easy to forgive, or easier to forgive, and then to pray for one another. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You say, who is a righteous man? Well, in the first case, every believer imputed with the righteousness of Christ. But I believe James is using it more in the practical sense of the righteous man is one who is right with God. A righteous believer from the practical point of view is a believer who is filled with the spirit, positive to the word, growing in grace and applying the truth of God's word to their life on a day-by-day basis. And when we live our lives that way and we pray, God hears. Going back to chapter 1, if we pray with doubt, if we pray with sin in our life, God is not going to hear and answer our prayers. The effective prayer, literally the prayer made effective. If you're a righteous person, all right, you believe in Jesus Christ. Number two, you know you're in fellowship filled with the Holy Spirit, how do you make your prayer effective? Well you just did. You you've you've crossed all the T's, daughter, all the I's, filled in all the blanks. You know you're a believer. You know that you're uh, urged to come boldly to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. You come before the throne of grace not cringing, not crying, not slump-shouldered. You come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because you know you have a right to be there. You're a child of God by faith in Christ. You know that you're coming in there in the energy of the Spirit. And Romans 8 tells us in verse 26 that when we pray in the in the filling of the Spirit, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He's not going to do that when you're out of fellowship. You want a mighty prayer? You want a prayer made effective? You come before the throne of God with clean hands, clean feet, a pure heart, filled with the Spirit of God, your prayers are going to move heaven and earth. And I've seen prayers answered in my life and in the lives of other others that were just a simple little prayer uttered once and it changes the whole course of history. At least in those lives. Prayer is a mighty, mighty weapon. We don't pray enough. You know what Jesus told his disciples? So important is prayer. I'm going to take a little extra time. Luke 18. Turn with me. What did Jesus think about prayer? Luke 18 verse 1 Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. There was in a certain city a judge that did not fear God nor regard man. Hard, hard, cold, calculating inflexible, immovable there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me for my adversary. You can think of a million situations where she was possibly being taken advantage of and she cries out to the judge for justice. He would not, verse 4 says, for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wears me out what a sense of humor Christ had. Why would he portray the Heavenly Father in the position of a hard, cold, calculating judge? I'll tell you why. Because that's how he seems to us sometimes. Sometimes it seems to us that we pour our prayers out, we cry to heaven, we shed tears, we Anguish in prayer. And it just seems like God says, So what? But again, why did he tell the parable? He spoke a parable then that men ought always, ought is a verb of obligation. You ought always to pray and not lose heart. If you have been praying for something and it hasn't happened, God's solution for you is keep praying. If you pray for it to the end of your life and it doesn't happen, you know what your prayers are doing? Your prayers are being answered in a better way. One day we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to see every prayer we've ever prayed. And you know what you're going to find out? He answered every one of them. Every one of them. You say, I keep praying for healing and I see no healing. Something better is happening. It may be your prayers for healing that is giving that person the strength and the courage and the tenacity to keep hanging on. Even though God seems oblivious to their suffering, they keep hanging on. And like Job, they say, even if he slays me, I'm going to trust him. Back to James. Never stop your prayers. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a sin nature like ours. That's essentially what he's telling us. Uh, Elijah was a man with like passions. some translations have. simply means he had a sin nature. Elijah was not a powerful man of prayer because he was better than you are. He was just like you. He had his weaknesses, his faults, his flaws, his failings. Read 1 Kings 19. He stands against the prophets of Baal and then Jezebel utters a word and he runs like a scared rabbit and hides in the cave. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting, by the way, that as you study the great characters of Scripture in the area where they're the strongest, it's usually the area where they fail? You know why that is? Because that's what they were all along in and of themselves. The courage and the boldness of And the strength of Elijah was his trust in the Lord. The Samson who could bring down the temple of Molech or whatever the temple was, Dagon I think it was, you know what he really was? He was just a philandering fool. He went through his whole life looking for the next gal that he could take to bed. That was him and his natural sinful self. His area of weakness may have been different than that of someone else. But the things that they accomplished, they accomplished because of what the Spirit of God did in their life. When Samson was not moved by the Holy Spirit, he was no stronger than any of us. They always portray Samson. You know this guy that looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger? No, big, muscled up. no. His strength wasn't in human muscle. He could have been a peewee hermit. When the Spirit of God moved, he accomplished great things. Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed earnestly. The Greek says he prayed in prayer. You know how to have powerful prayer? Pray in prayer. Say, how do I pray in prayer? Well, you pray in prayer when your prayer is being prayed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter Piper picked the back. sorry. Verse 18 He prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its food. That's pretty powerful prayers. You know what I wonder? I wonder what would happen if a group like those of us gathered here today learned how to really pray. If we really prayed for the leaders of this country, if we really prayed for the evil that is overtaking our nation. Have you ever studied any of the great revivals? The Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, the Great Awakening that they had in Ireland in the 1860s. You know, the first Great Awakening was earlier in the 1800s, I think around 1840 if I'm not mistaken, I may be wrong on the date, but the people in Ireland heard about the Great Awakening and the change that had happened in America, and they said, why can't we have that here? And a handful of Irish believers started gathering together and praying. And they would pray for hours and they would pray through the night. And people would go by their houses. I I read a book while I was in Australia. I wish I had the book. I can't even remember the title. People would go by and they would see the lights on and they would notice the lights are on all night. And so they would go and they'd say, What's going on? Your lights here. Your, your lamps are lit all night long. And they'd say, we're praying. We're praying for our nation. They'd say, well, can we join you? Yeah. It started growing and growing and growing. And there came a point where that prayer of that group that was gathering hit that nation like a spark in a bunch of tinder, and boom, a great revival happened. It could happen here. If we prayed the way Elijah prayed, Verse 19, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back. So what did we see? The right path, seven steps upward. Second Peter chapter 1. The wrong path, Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. That's the path down. Someone gets a hold of the guy that's going down before he dies to sin unto death and restores him. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1? If a brother is overtaken in a fault, make sure that you let the whole church know what he did. Oh, no, that's the wrong translation. If a brother is overtaken in a fault, all of you restore him. No, it doesn't say that either because some people are not fit to restore. Can I just tell you something? If you love to find fault and criticize other people, you're unfit to restore an erring believer. You're not fit. None of us are, if that's our mentality. If a brother is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, and the idea here is that this is their habitual way of life, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, considering yourself, lest you be tempted. Now the temptation that could come to you could be falling into the same thing they fell into, but I don't think that's the case. I think the thing he's warning them about even though their normal way of life is to be spiritual is that they make it a matter of gossip, slander, maligning, mental attitude, sins, judging. Consider yourself. Watch out. This guy fell into adultery. Why? How could he do that? I would never do that. Well, you just fell into one worse. Now you're a judge. See what he means? Restore such a one. But watch yourself. If someone turns him back, James says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, one of the most wonderful things you can find in life is people who can know how badly you've sinned and they keep it to themselves. That's integrity. That's real honor. To know how badly a fellow believer has sinned and not make it a public issue. will save a soul from death. Is he talking here about eternal life? Of course not. He's dealing with a fellow believer. He's a brethren, if anyone among you. If we restore a sinning believer, we're certainly not saving his soul in the sense of giving him eternal life. In the ancient world, at the time that James wrote, the phrase to save a soul was idiomatic for how we would say, you saved my life. We we say that often, don't we? We lose the car keys and our wife finds them and you say, man, you saved my life. i got to be in a meeting. You save a fellow believer from death, and sin under death, because that's the way they were heading, and you have rescued them, and you have brought them back, and now their life can fulfill the purpose for which God had for them. Folks, the book of James is done. Our study in the book of James is done, but the application of it just begins as we go out these doors. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. You have cups on your table. These include the bread in the top. You might want to start working at it now because sometimes it's kind of hard to separate that little top thin plastic from rest of the container giving you a little bit of time to get organized and then we're going to remember two things we're going to remember that Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed and that's an important statement there in John 13 in the night in which he was betrayed. What was he thinking about? The agony he was about to go through? He was thinking about those disciples. He took bread and he blessed it. Sometimes when I'm at a home, people will say, would you bless the food? And I said, I don't have that power. But I will ask that it be blessed. He had the power to bless it. He blessed it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it. This is my body, which we're going to do here in a minute. Which is given for you. Remember me. And then he took the cup, which was the third cup of the Passover meal, which was called the cup of redemption. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And he said, remember me. And then he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming soon. We want to keep remembering. Him. But he said one other thing, and that is, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, will come again and I will receive you to myself and I love this last part not just so that you can escape the fires of hell not just so that you can be free of the judgment and the penalty that you deserve so that where I am you will be also how does Paul conclude Section in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he talks about the rapture of the church, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. That day's coming, it's real. I don't believe it's too far in the future. I want to remember him. The bread represents his body, which was brutally, horribly tortured, abused, scourged, beaten, crucified. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. This little cup, small though it may be, if that cup were holding the actual bloodshed on the cross, what would it be worth? Not in monetary value. What would it mean to you? This cup, he said, represents the new covenant in my blood. What's the essence of the new covenant? Two great promises. Their sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. That's our part. Their sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. And they will be my people. I will be their God. This cup represents his sacrifice that makes it possible. He said, do this and remember me. And with that, my friends, we are done. I want to thank you again for coming. The very fact that you take the time to come is an encouragement to me. The very fact that you have sat here through hours means a lot to me. I never take it for granted that anybody would want to listen to me. I am always thankful. So let's pray. Be blessed. As Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. and Go out and live a blessed life that blesses others. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your people. What a wonderful thing to be a member of the royal family of God. Help us to learn to love and appreciate one another, to uphold and strengthen one another as we go our way. Help us also to be that light, that witness to the world in such a way that they would come to us and ask, what is it that makes your life different? And we would be ready to give an answer to each and every one who asks a reason of the hope that is within us. And we will do it, Father, in meekness and in fear. Thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.